Notice that response of the disciples in verse 9. They came up him and they took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. Friends, is that what we've come to do today? To, to see and to, to worship the risen, resurrected, and reigning Savior. For indeed, it is. If you have a Bible, open with me to Paul's letter to the Colossians. The book of Colossians, chapter 2. And um, we'll take this week and try to cram verses 6 through 15 into a single study, a single sermon. We finished up the Gospel of John last Sunday. Next week we have a um, guest speaker from Anchored in Truth, a brother from South Africa who is um, here in the States right now coming to preach for us. And so today, before we launch into our next um, consecutive exposition of Scripture, the book of Galatians, I want to take just one week to consider Christ's authority over his church. Christ's authority over his church. So Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. And, and we want to see who Christ is, what he has done, and why he is rightfully the head of the church. We've studied his life and ministry in the Gospel of John, and we will embark upon Paul's letter to the Galatians which is a letter where he exhorts those people to contend for the faith, to contend for the truth. So I want to take just one week and to consider Christ's authority, why he is glorious, why he is reigning, and why we indeed must contend for the truth of the gospel. And a hint, and we contend for the truth because Christ is the head of the church. And Christ commands us to proclaim the truth. So let's read our text, we will pray, and then we will dive into um, these verses in Colossians chapter 2. So Colossians 2, beginning in verse 6, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete, and he is head over all rule and authority." And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our God, we come to you now. And we confess our great need for you through the 
authority and the truth of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds to the truth. God, for we cannot on our own strength, by our own initiative, understand and rightly apply the truth of your word. While your word is simple, it takes the power and the work of the Spirit to to truly root and establish your word in our hearts. So Lord, as, as we now come to the preaching and teaching of your word, may you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that will receive and humbly apply the truth. Lord, for the wisdom of the world is foolishness to you. And the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, the word of the cross, the word of Christ, is your power unto salvation. God, may we see and behold the beauty and the glory of the person and the work of Christ today. For he is indeed our head, our shepherd, our savior, our redeemer. And he is the resurrected, reigning king of kings. May the name of Christ be glorified among us today. To your praise and your honor. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So as we think about Colossians 2, verses 6 through 15, the, the central proposition, the main theme, if you will, that we want to look at today, the main theme that we see in this text is the idea that those who have been joined to Christ, that is, his church, must regulate their lives according to his word by rejecting worldly philosophy and empty deceit and submit themselves to the written, revealed word, rule, and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why must we do that? Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, that Jesus is the head of the church. He himself is indeed the Savior of the body. And he wrote that the church is subject to Christ. So why must we regulate our lives according to the written revealed word of Christ? Because he is our head. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. And so we must submit to the rule and authority of Christ. Now before we dive into this, I want to give you just a little bit of background on this letter to the Colossians. There's some things in that we would have looked at in an introduction to this letter that will be helpful in understanding some of the things that Paul says here. Um, the city of Colossae, it was primarily Gentile. Now, about 200 years before Christ, there was an influx of Jews that came into the city. So there were Jews and Gentiles, but it was primarily a Gentile city. MacArthur noted here that Colossae's mixed population of Jews and Gentiles manifested itself both in the composition of the church, the makeup of the church, and also in the heresies that plagued the church. Those heresies contained both elements of Jewish legalism and pagan mysticism. That was the Gentile and the Jewish culture being brought in by converts into the church. And as we look at the warnings Paul gives here momentarily, that little background will help you understand why Paul writes what he writes, why he encourages the way that he encourages. It's also worth noting that this letter to the Colossians was written 
very near, potentially at the exact same time, concurrently with Paul's letter to the Ephesians. If you were to study these letters side by side, you would see a lot of the same running themes. There were the same problems plagued these churches, and so Paul wrote very similar letters to these people. The church at Colossae was not founded by Paul. If we were to look back at um, chapter 2, verse 1, we would see that likely many of those people at the church didn't even know Paul's face. He, He had not been there to meet these people, but rather the church was founded likely by a man by the name of Epaphras. Epaphras was likely converted while Paul Paul ministered for an extended period in the town of Ephesus. Then he went back to his hometown of Colossae and founded a church. And so being being converted under Paul's ministry, you can understand why, why Epaphras would have put into these people a great abiding respect for Paul. And that is the reason that Paul can write to them the way that he does, because they respect his authority. They respect his apostleship. Paul gives them a great encouragement in chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. We'll back up to verse 21. Chapter 1, verse 21, he said, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to, so that he may present you before him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That is how Christ presents his church to himself. But verse 23 then gives this little warning, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. So Paul gives this great encouragement. He tells them that you will be presented holy and blameless, if you stand firm, if you remain in the hope to which and by which you have been called. And that same promise applies to us today, that if we continue in the truth, Christ will present us to himself as holy and blameless. But we must continue in the faith. We must remain steadfast in the truth. We must be established in and unmoved from the truth of the gospel. And so it's in light of these spiritual battles, this attack of heresy and the need to stand upon the truth that Paul is writing to the Colossians. And it's in light of these battles that we will look at Colossians 2 verses 6 through 15. We're going to use verses 6 and 7 as our conclusion in a little bit. So we're going to jump straight to verse 8 And look at the idea of the resistance to worldly attacks or the resistance of worldly attacks. We need to resist worldly attacks and there will be resistance to us from worldly attacks. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So notice here how strong of language Paul uses. He says, do not be taken captive. You hear that word captive, and you may conjure up in your mind the images of the ancient wars. In the old times, they would fight wars, and when they wanted to get together to to work on a peace treaty, they would exchange prisoners. They would exchange captives. You might think of someone who is running from the law today, and the police apprehend that man. They take him to jail, and he is now taken captive. He is taken into custody. And those words are, are, those descriptions are accurate to 
what Paul is getting at here, but, but they don't get the whole idea. This word speaks specifically to the spoil of a war. It speaks to carrying off something or someone as the victor's spoil. Greek dictionary gives a working definition of this term in this context as leading someone away from the truth and making them subject to someone else's sway. So, so taking someone captive to, to pull them away from the truth and bring them into submission under the authority of a different truth. Some older um, translations of the scripture would even translate this to say, beware lest anyone plunder you. Beware lest anyone take you as the plunder of their false gospel, of their false teaching. And so this is no trivial matter to Paul. This is of utmost importance. He tells the Colossians to see to it, to make sure of the fact that you are not taken captive. See to it that you discern the errors by directing your mind's attention to the idea of not being pulled away, not being captivated by heretical and untrue and dangerous doctrine. Friends, there's never been a day in in our lifetime, I would say never been a day in history, where this is more important, that we see to it that we are not taken captive by worldly philosophy and empty deception, but rather we bring ourselves under the authority and the lordship of Christ. So Paul gives this warning. He tells the believers to take care and to guard against being taken captive. And then he describes the things that were a danger to carry the Colossian believers away. He tells them what would carry them away, that is, philosophy and empty deception. And he tells them the manner in which they would be attacked. And that is the traditions of men and the elementary principles of the world. Now here's where that background that we talked about just a few moments ago becomes so important. What, what was the composition of the church here in Colossae? It was Gentiles and Jews. What plagued then the um, Gentile converts, especially in that reason? It was Gnosticism. The idea that there was a special revelation of truth that one needed to come to some form of salvation. That, that the scriptures were not sufficient. You had to have a special knowledge to be saved. The Gentiles were saved out of that mysticism, that pagan religion. They're saved into Christ. What about the Jews? There were also Jews there. What was the plaguing thing of the Jews? We saw it throughout John's gospel. We'll see it as we look to Galatians. The Jews were plagued by the joining of Jewish law, the the traditions of men with the truth of the gospel. The, The Jewish converts struggled with how to wed together their old way of life under the Old Testament law with their new life in Christ, where Christ came as a fulfillment of the law. So what plagued that church is Gnosticism and Jewish tradition. Paul tells them, beware then and stand against being taken captive and carried away by your former way of life. Paul would talk in Galatians about not rebuilding what he had once destroyed when he came out of Judaism. And so it's like he's telling the Colossians, be careful that you don't rebuild your past religion and bring that into your Christianity because it is all garbage. It is all worthless. All it will do is lead you further and further 
and further away from the truth of the gospel of Christ. So let's consider then these phrases and these terms just briefly. Philosophy, okay? He says, don't, don't be taken captive by philosophy. Philosophy at its core is the love and the study of wisdom and knowledge. But what type of wisdom and knowledge does Paul have in mind? Because there is a good pursuit of wisdom and knowledge. So what does Paul have in mind? He says, don't be taken captive by this philosophy that is according to the traditions of men and the elementary principles of the world. Don't be taken captive by worldly philosophy. The wisdom and knowledge of God, of course, are good to pursue. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. If we fear God, we will grow in and pursue and achieve wisdom and knowledge. But Paul says, don't be taken captive by this other type of wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom and knowledge that is according to the principles of the world. Paul also uses the phrase empty deception and... um, While we might separate these out, I think we could separate out the deception from the philosophy. John Calvin and Matthew Henry both relate these ideas back together. There's a lot of overlap in these things. Matthew Henry wrote of this, that there's a philosophy which is vain and deceitful. There's a philosophy which is harmful to religion, and it sets up the wisdom of man in competition with the wisdom of God. And while it pleases men's fancies, it ruins their faith. While it pleases men's fancies, it ruins their faith. The wisdom, this type of wisdom is nice and curious speculations. It produces nice and curious speculations of things above us, but it is of no use and it should be of no concern to us. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul there is talking about um, those who have been taken captive by a false teacher. And he said that those people were led on by various impulses and they were always learning but never coming to true, full knowledge of the truth. Friends, do you see that in our day? Those who are always learning, they're so open-minded as some would say that their brains are going to fall out of their head. They're always learning, but they never come to the end. They never come to a full knowledge of the truth. That's because they don't go back to Genesis 1-1 and say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When we go back to that even, that is our root in all things, that in the beginning, God, God has all authority, all power, all dominion. And when we go back to that, all the deception And the worldly philosophies of our day are seen for what they are. They're junk. They're garbage. They are useless. So what is the primary mark of um, the love of this type of wisdom, this type of philosophy that is empty, that is vain, that is deceptive and according to the traditions of of men? This type of philosophy is clearly evident because it is knowledge according to the wisdom of the world. You know worldly philosophy because it's according to the things of the world rather than, Paul says at the end of verse 8, being in submission to Christ. It's the philosophy that the world would give you, not the truth that Christ would give you. You say, well, where can we find God's truth? Friends, you know the answer to that. 
We find God's truth in his word. He has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness in his written, revealed word, the 66 books of the Bible. Paul makes a clear, clear distinction here between worldly philosophies and the the truth that accords to Christ. Let me just encourage you, dear friends, to do the same thing in your life in these days. Make a clear distinction between the philosophies that the world would give you and the truth that is according to Christ. Don't fall prey to the heresy, to, to this, this mystical idea that all truth is God's truth. Yes, it is. All truth does flow out of God. But just because something is sprinkled with truth does not mean that it's absolute truth. You do not need the philosophies of the world to grow in godliness. You do not need the philosophies of the world to know how to respond to the needs of our day. You need God's word and his Holy Spirit living in you. How do you spot a worldly philosopher? A worldly philosopher, his knowledge is chiefly, it's mostly, not not completely, because again, then they would identify themselves, and that's not the goal. Their knowledge is chiefly man-sourced. Their their knowledge is chiefly human-centric. Their focus is on men and not on Christ. Paul would later write um, towards the end of chapter 2 that the elementary principles of the world are such decrees that have the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement, but they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. How do you spot worldly philosophy? It does not aid you in your fight for godliness. So much that you hear today in this world will we'll give you, as Mike said this morning, you know, five steps to a better life, 10 ways to improve your marriage, 15 ways to do this, that, or the other. But it is the word of God that has true value in our fight against the flesh. How do you know worldly wisdom and self-made religion? They're based on and they work out from things that do not promote actual godliness. They're rules that curb and control behavior, but they're not rooted in devotion to the Lord and submission to his word. Dear friends, we must understand the resistance that will come to us from worldly attacks, and we must grow in our resistance toward such worldly attacks. This is the warning that Paul gives Next, just quickly, let's look in verses 10 and 15 and see the rule of Christ overall. We're working towards seeing his authority over the church. So let's consider his rule overall. At the end of verse 10, it says, And he made, he he is the head over all rule and authority. Verse 15, When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So, Paul warned the Colossians not to be taken captive by worldly philosophy, worldly wisdom, worldly things, worldly deception. Why is that? It's because, as we see in verse 10, that Christ is Lord over all. Christ rules over all, period. End of sentence, end of statement. We don't come under the worldly philosophies because we are under Christ, and he is Lord of all. As a church who belongs to Jesus as its head, as its Lord, 
as its shepherd and savior, the Colossians clearly would fit into this category. We clearly fit into this category of verse 10 of those over whom Christ is ruler. He is head over all rule and all authority. In Colossians 1.16, Paul said, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created in Christ. Verse 17, it says, All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Colossians 1.18, Paul continues, Jesus is the head of the body. What body? He is head of the church. He is your head. He is my head. He is our collective head. He rules over all. Let's zone in on verse 15 for a few moments, then we'll come back and look at those verses in between momentarily and consider the, the evil spiritual rulers and authorities over whom Christ is. Verse 15, when he had disarmed rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So we see the extent of Jesus' victory. He disarmed the evil spiritual rulers and authorities. That is that he divested himself. He stripped their power. He threw them off of himself. When he bursted forth from the grave, as we celebrate today, that was a show. It It wasn't that throwing off of them, but it was a show of Christ's authority where he threw off the power of sin and death and said, no, I am alive. I have brought myself back to life. John Calvin said, there's no doubt that Paul speaks here of devils, those whom Scripture represents as acting the part of accusing us before God. Paul, however, says that they are disarmed so that they cannot bring forward anything against us. Calvin said, the proof of our guilt itself has been destroyed. How has the proof of our guilt been destroyed? It's been destroyed because our debt was paid. The proof of your guilt was destroyed, not by being thrown into a shredder, but because Christ took your punishment in himself. I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll look at this in depth in a few minutes. But the, the, the guilt that you carry is destroyed because Christ paid the price for your sin. Christ disarmed Satan. He stripped him of his power. And Christ has taken you as your spoil. He has taken you as his captive, as his reward for his work on the cross. How did Jesus do this? He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them. To make a public display speaks of making a public and disgraceful example of someone or something. Jesus publicly humiliated Satan and Satan's schemes by his triumphant work of redeeming lost souls by his death on the cross and his glorious resurrection. What could be more humiliating than to to Satan's work, to Satan's schemes? What could be more humiliating than for this scheme that is in one sense, not not in every sense, so let's not misunderstand that, but this scheme in one sense of Jesus' death was absolutely hatched in the pits of hell, right? It was the eternal plan of God for Jesus to die, but Satan entered into Judas when Judas went to betray Christ. 
So this scheme, in a sense, was hatched in the pits of hell. And what could be more humiliating to Satan's work than for that work of putting Christ to death to be used for the redemption of his people and ultimately the glory of Christ? It is as the Lord promised back in Genesis chapter 3 that Satan would bruise the heel of Christ. But what did he say? Christ would crush the head of the serpent. Henry said, these are lofty, these um, expressions are lofty and magnificent. The Redeemer conquered by dying. See that his crown of thorns was turned into a crown of glories. He broke the devil's power and he conquered and disabled Satan. And he made a public disgrace of Satan. Dear friends, this is our Savior. This is our Christ our Messiah, Messiah, and he is the head over all. He is the ruler of all. He is the head over everything on heaven and on earth and even over all things that are under the earth. And he has disarmed and publicly humiliated the great enemy, Satan himself. But let us not forget, let us, let us make sure that we remember that he is not only head over evil rulers and authorities, But he is also head over his body. He is head over the church. So let's consider the reason for Christ's authority in in these verses, verses 9 through 14. We've seen the resistance of worldly attacks, the rule of Christ. And now let's consider the reason for his authority, firstly in verse 9. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So why is Christ the head and the ruler and the authority of the church? Very simply stated, Jesus Christ, who hung on a cross outside the city of Jerusalem, is head over the church because in him, the fullness of deity, the fullness of God dwelt in human form. Jesus is Lord of the church because he is Lord over all. He holds all things together. As Paul said in Colossians 1.17, he holds his people together. So the reason for our authority, our, our submission to him and his authority over us is because he holds us together as his body. In verse 11, we see that the next point of Jesus' authority is one that Paul commonly argued about in the New Testament. Verse 11 he said, In him you were also circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So <clears throat> Jesus has authority over us because we, are, we receive the circumcision of our body of flesh through him. Again, consider the context of this letter. There are Jews here who are surely bringing in their Jewish traditions like the law of circumcision. And they were pressing them upon people. We know that that plagued the early church, that the Jews would would try to bring Old Testament laws and press them upon Gentile converts. And Paul denies the necessity of that external law. He says that we receive the circumcision that is made without hands. What circumcision is that? It is the circumcision of the heart. In Deuteronomy 30, the Lord was reminding and, and setting forth his promises to restore the Israelite people to their promised land, to the land of their fathers. 
He, he was promising to bring them out of captivity and give them to that land. But the greatest promise he made there in Deuteronomy 30 is in verse 6, where it says, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to do what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live, so that you may have life. Christ is the head of the church because it is in him that we receive the circumcision of the heart. In Romans 2.29, Paul said that the circum- this circumcision is of the heart. It is by the Spirit, and it is not by the letter. It's not according to the letter of the law, but according to the work of the Spirit. And he says those of this kind of heart desire and receive, they desire and receive praise that is not from men, but from God. So Jesus has authority over the church because he is God and because he cuts off our heart of flesh. Then verse 12, we see that he also has authority over us because we are buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Jesus rules over the church because of the very thing we celebrate today, that we are joined with him in his resurrection, that we are, yes, indeed, raised to newness of life in Christ. Calvin picked up on this idea that Paul makes a very clear showing here of the spiritual transformation that the believer knows by being joined together with Christ in his resurrection. We are made partakers with him in his death, and we're made victorious overcomers with him in his resurrection. The resurrection, yes, it is all about Christ. It is all to the glory of Christ, but the resurrection does show that we are overcomers. We are joined with him. We are joined to him in his overcoming of sin and flesh and death. This is what Paul wrote in in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. We have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. We are joined with Christ in his death and, and raised with him in his resurrection to walk in newness of life. What is the means of our being joined with Christ? Verse, verse 12 makes it clear. We're also raised up with him through faith in the working of God. We're raised up with him through faith. We're saved by grace through faith, not of our works, but it is the power of God at work in us so that we do not boast, so that he is glorified. Ephesians 2, 5 through 7 says that even when we are dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ and, he, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is the reason for Christ's authority over his church because we are joined together with him in spiritual circumcision of the, of the heart and we are raised up together with him in his baptism, in his death, and in his resurrection. 
In verses 13 and 14, we see kind of the, the final component of, of this authority of Christ over the church. It says, when we were dead, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So, dear friends, while you were dead in your sins and held captive to the ways of the world, Romans 5 would describe you as one who was a sinner and an enemy of God. While you were in that dead position, God made you alive together with Christ. He did so by forgiving your sins, by forgiving your transgressions, because Every one of those transgressions was nailed to Christ on the cross. Hear the fullness of Paul's statements here. There was a certificate of debt that, that was against us, like, like a mortgage. You have a, mor- a mortgage payment on your home. If you, have, if you have that mortgage, that is a certificate of debt against you. It says that you owe all this money. And you can pay it back over this amount of time with this payment every month. Well, the certificate of debt against us was a certificate of debt that you could never pay. That in a million lifetimes, you could never pay one lifetime of debt. Because there was nothing good in you. But that debt, dear friends, was canceled. That debt was not thrown into a shredder. It was not canceled by by being erased with, with an eraser on a pencil, that debt was canceled because it was wiped away by the precious blood of Jesus at the cross. The Greek term here for canceled means to wash in every part. Or even closer, I think, to our context, it means to obliterate, to wipe out, to blot out, and to wipe away. Friends, that's what Jesus did to your sins to each and every sin committed by every saint from all eternity at the cross. He wiped them out. He blotted them out. He washed them away by the precious blood that he spilled at the cross. Isaiah 25 verse 8 says of the Lord that he will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And we're familiar with this idea that he will wipe away every tear. And and how we rejoice to know that all of our sufferings, all of our trials in this life, when we get to glory, while those things may be hard in this world, when we get to glory, those things will come into view as being light and momentary. So we understand this idea that every tear will be wiped away. But just as every tear will be wiped away, friends, understand that every sin, every transgression was wiped away. It was wiped away by the precious blood of Christ. Our sins, they consisted of these decrees and judgments that were against us, that were hostile toward us. And yet all of those sins, all of those decrees, all of that hostility towards us because of our breaking of God's law, All of those were canceled because they were nailed to Jesus while he was nailed to the cross. 
So this is a wondrous hope and, and an amazing victory. And so you ask the question, where do we go from here? We see the glory of Christ. What do we do with all this? Well, consider the results of Christ's work. Back up at verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. So just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so too, Paul says, you must walk in him. If all these things from from verses 9 through 14 are true about you, so too then must you walk. In Christ. How do you walk in him? You walk in him by being firmly rooted and, and built up in your faith according to the truth of his word. And when you are built up and grounded and rooted in those things, you will live a life according to his word and in devotion to him. You will overflow indeed with gratitude to him for his work. Now we don't have time to, to go through all of this today, so I just want to take these two verses kind of as high-level application points. How, how do we take the truths from 8 through 15 and apply them? I think verses 6 and 7 have some, some clear applications and implications. So to walk in Christ simply and succinctly, it is to order and to regulate your life according to his word. If you've received Christ, so walk in him. How do you walk in him? By ordering and regulating your life according to his word. How do you do this? You order your life according to his word by being grounded in and, and built up in and established in your faith, as Paul says in, in verse 7, just as you were instructed. You are instructed according to God's word. If you received the gospel, it was the gospel that God reveals in his word. So be built up in that. Be, be established in that. Be rooted in that truth. The truth of God's word. Paul warned that the attacks of falsehood would come there in verse 8. And, and here lies our method and our means of battling against such. We must be firmly rooted and grounded and planted in Christ and his word. Like a tree, you must have deep roots in the truth. When the storms and the trials and the attacks of life come, friend, if you're not rooted in the truth, you will not stand. The truth must be your source of strength, your, your nutrients, and ultimately your source of growth. You grow up in being filled with the truth of Christ. You must be like a building that is built up in and built upon the foundation of Christ and his word. I told Mike that he stole um, a lot of my sermon notes, I think, this morning. Christ is indeed the cornerstone on whom we are and must be built. The cornerstone is both that, that stone that is the very lowest level of foundation. That cornerstone wobbles, the building collapses. But it's also the standard by which everything is built. If you have a crooked cornerstone, you have a crooked house, a crooked building. We are built upon the cornerstone and the standard of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He is one on whom, by whom we must be measured and on whom we must be built. In final response to all this, Paul says that we must be overflowing with gratitude. 
We must abound with a heart of thanksgiving as we consider what Christ has done for us. This is what the Christian life is all about. We give our life to Christ as the glorious and resurrected Savior. And we do that by living a life of devoted obedience to Him because we overflow with gratitude. Any obedience that doesn't flow from love for, devotion to, and gratitude to the Lord is an improper type of obedience. We, we obey because we love. This is not legalism. This is not works-based righteousness. This is not works-based justification. This is pure-hearted, God-honoring, love-produced devotion and obedience. This, friends, is what Paul talked about in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, when he said to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Present yourselves to the living God as a, as a holy, living, and acceptable sacrifice. So to summarize, you were bought with a price. Your sin debt was canceled by Christ when he was nailed to the cross. It was canceled because he bore your sin in his body on the tree so that you could die to that sin and live in his righteousness. He is the triumphant Lord over all. And his triumph is displayed in his resurrection and his ascension back to glory. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Your duty is to walk in him. Your duty is to reject the philosophy and the ways of the world and the unbiblical traditions of men and submit to the authoritative rule of Christ and Christ alone. Christ rules you. Christ rules his people, his church, by his word and by nothing else. And you should do all this because you abound in and overflow with a thankful heart because Christ gave his life for you. He bore all the horrors of, of Friday. We celebrate Good Friday because we remember that it is good for us. Because that was when Christ bore all the punishment, all the evil, all the wicked, everything that had to come upon him so that you could be forgiven. Friends, that should cause your heart to overflow with gratitude. In a way, the, the Christian life really, friends, is simple. Christ died for you so that you would live for him. Christ died for you so that you would live for him by devoting your life to knowing him and obeying his commands. If you love me, you will keep my commands. So friends, our, our duty here, our duty today as we remember the resurrection of Christ on, on this day as a whole, as we remember his authority over his church in this text here, we must run to him in faith. We must run to him with repentance. And when we do that, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He is worthy. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. He is worthy to receive honor and glory and power and might and dominion forever and ever. So friends, let's get busy doing that, ascribing that to him by the way that we live. 
If you're not in Christ, you can't glorify him by living that way because all of your works will be filthy rags if you're not in him. So if you're not in Christ, run to him in repentance. Repent of your sins. Turn away from those sins. Place your faith and your hope in Christ, in Christ alone. And you do that. As I just said, he is faithful and just. He promises in his word to be faithful and just, to forgive your sins, to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And he puts his spirit within us to empower us, to help us. His spirit is the helper, as we studied in John's gospel. And the spirit is the means by which we take all the glorious truth of his word and are able to apply it to our lives. We live by the power of the spirit for the sake and the glory of God and God alone. Let's close in prayer.